We stay together, we survive. What we've got here is failure to communicate. To communicate. Stick together. In the name of unit cohesion. Cohesion. You are listening to the Cohesion Podcast. Actionable tips from internal comms leaders on how to improve your company's employee experience. Hello, and welcome to the Cohesion Podcast. This episode features an interview with Leslie Quinton, VP of Communications at Ubisoft, a gaming company with over 20,000 employees and 40 office locations worldwide. With over 20 years of communication experience across multiple industries at companies big and small, Leslie is a walking comms playbook. On this episode, Leslie shares her must-dos for doing global communications right, what the secret ingredient is for improving company culture, and her advice for comms leaders struggling to get company buy-in. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Simpler, the modern intranet software that simplifies the employee experience. If you are looking to increase employee engagement, collaboration, and connectivity, Simpler is your answer. Learn more at simpler.com. So please enjoy this interview between Leslie Quinton, VP of Communications at Ubisoft, and your host, Amanda Berry. All right, Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to start a little bit about your background. How did you get interested in communications? It's actually a little bit funny, Amanda, because it wasn't my destiny, actually. I was supposed to be studying something else. And I was, I was when I was in school, in fact, I was really focused on, I thought I was going to be a university professor. And I was doing communications a little bit on the side. I was, I was a professional debater, if I can say that, a competitive debater at university. And I loved to write and I loved to talk. And so this little communications job I had on the side was really a way just to make some extra money. And I started writing speeches and then I was doing translations. Then I started writing magazine articles and I just kind of got into it very organically. And then after that, I began to really develop expertise by living it, by really working in the field. So a little bit of an unconventional path, but then I ended up going back to school anyway and teaching. So that was my education because when you teach, you really have to (laughs) educate yourself first. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I hear from a lot of great leaders we have on this is, you know, when I ask the question, how did you get into this? Their answers always seem to be, it just, I just sort of fell into this. It was, it's never super sort of planned. I think that's a good lesson I would like people to take away, be open to this kind of different experiences. I mean, you know something, there was a study that was done a while ago in the U.S. that showed that people in communications in particular are probably more skilled and a little more flexible when they come from other kinds of backgrounds. In other words, and I'm, and I, I can't look, I, I taught at two different universities, so I obviously believe in teaching communications, but, but there is something to be said by having an, another background beyond communications as well, that you bring another perspective and a little bit of openness to whatever you, whatever you're approaching. And that's really critical in any communications area. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great call out. I, I just spoke with someone recently who, yeah, who never had an internal communications title and then just got into like a senior director role. So I think that's a really good call out. Can you tell me a little bit more about your current role as VP of communications at Ubisoft? So the Ubisoft environment, as you might know, we're one of the world's biggest uh, video game producers and one of the oldest as well. It started literally in the founder's garage 35 years ago. In fact, this month is the 35th anniversary. We've now grown to uh, 50 studios around the world and 
all kinds of the world's uh, top-selling uh, video games. I'm not going to do a, an ad for them, but it's interesting for me. I've only been here six and a half months. So as a newcomer to this industry, which is such a different world from anything else I've ever been part of, it's so interesting to find out all of the different components of what does it mean to be part of this of this particular world, which has such a huge social impact. I didn't realize before I started working here that uh, that the video game industry is bigger than the movie industry and bigger than the music industry. The impact and the influence that it has is extraordinary. So I'm in charge of internal and external communications, which includes our events and all of our activities here, both with employees, but also our media relations. Uh, I'm part of a bigger global team. So there's we've got people who do this in, in other places around the world as well. But what's been really exciting for me is understanding kind of the cultural revolution that we're going through within our organization and even within our industry and that's a big part of the internal comms role that I play. Yeah, I, I have some questions about that later. I just want to go into, uh, get, get some stories from you. So I'm going to go move into story time. Welcome to story time. Story time. Story time. Let me tell you a story. So you mentioned you joined Ubisoft about six and a half months ago. Uh, and it is a very large company. I think I saw it at 20,000 employees. Mm-hmm. Around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like maybe it was, I think maybe you said 50 or 40 different countries Mm -hmm. Um, joining that size of a company during a pandemic, which I'm guessing you've been virtual ever since then. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, a big part of it is virtual, even just because you're so spread out. Um, How does that experience being both virtual during a pandemic and being spread out influence how your team helps new people get onboarded to the company? So that's a really it's a really interesting question because first of all for me as an employee it was an interesting experience or a that's not even the word it's really an odd experience because it was the first time in my life I've ever been hired without actually meeting anybody face to face or seeing the office space so I have a tremendous empathy for all those employees who started new jobs during the the pandemic such a different such a different experience on so many levels so one of the things that happened here and that that I I'm really proud of our team team started before I got here, of course, because I've only been here since May, but the is the whole onboarding process has been critically changed in order to become a virtual one. And soon we hope it'll be a hybrid one. So we'll have aspects that are in person and aspects that are online. But we went from a culture which is highly engaged. So you can imagine video games, the people who work in the video game industry are people who who have a high level of social interaction. They love to play games, like literally people play physical games and play games with each other at lunch and things like that. It's a very, like, I'm not you're talking about video games. I'm talking about your old style, you know, conventional board games. So there's this tremendous need to kind of connect and moving that to an online mode was really an interesting challenge. So we have the best onboarding I've ever experienced. I've worked for about let's say over the course of my career, seven or eight large organizations, as well as when I was an agency, I worked with a lot of other organizations and saw their models. I've never seen such an interesting onboarding model. And so that was really the key thing during the pandemic is to how to keep people engaged from the moment they start. So having this really fantastic onboarding that was interactive, that allowed people to play games a little bit with one another. There was quizzes at the end of the week that had created little challenges and moments to interconnect. It honestly was I think key how this company was able to manage through all of that and how I was able to kind of fit in pretty quickly. Now we're back to um, more presence in the office. So it's a little easier because there's nothing like connecting with people in real life, but our onboarding was a a big part of it. 
Is there one, just, just thinking about this before we move on, is there one mistake that you see a lot of companies are making that that's something they could turn around very easily? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say there's a lot of companies who took some time because I worked, I was working at a different company at the beginning of the pandemic and we, and it was also a global company and I was responsible for all the communications. In fact, it was a 30,000 person company, people in all these different countries don't speak the same language, also manufacturing. So in a manufacturing environment, you could imagine how disruptive that was because suddenly people couldn't come to the office and you had to only communicate with them strictly through writing or through kind of the traditional uh, means. So one of the things that I think that companies did at the beginning and now have really gotten out of a lot more was trying to rely upon their old ways of doing things and figure out just how to adjust the old way as opposed to thinking in a completely new way. And I think that's the virtue of the pandemic, if there is a silver lining to it, is that it forced us to get out of some old paradigms and really shift our thinking. So the companies that didn't do well in internal communications tried to take their existing model and tweak it, whereas the companies who did well said, we're going to do this totally differently. We're going to introduce a whole new platform or we're going to change who delivers the messages or other things. But it, that's, it's kind of seizing that opportunity in what was really, a, you know, obviously a global crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to switch gears for a second because I know you sit on uh, several boards, uh, the boards of several foundations, um, and you've, you've done so in the past. I know this is going to be a little bit like which child is your favorite, but do you, do you have a, a favorite foundation that you're most proud of the work you're doing in? Um, and if there's more than one, just you know, shout them all out. But I'm just curious about your work you do on all these boards. Oh, that's such a, I did that. I did not expect that question. There's two that I'm doing a lot of work for right now, mainly because I'm president of one and the incoming president of the other. So in my very limited spare time, it's really devoted a lot. One is I'm president of the Canadian chapter of International Women's Forum. And that's all about leveraging women's influence, women who are leaders already, making sure that we support the next generation, that we are using our capacity to make real change and provide equity. And it's, it's a real interesting group. There's only 5,000 members around the world, but it's making great changes and really impacting everything from public policy to, you know, on the ground change. So that I'm very proud of. And there's a, it's it's not a favorite child, but it certainly consumes a lot of my non-working life. And then the other one, the one I'm incoming president is MedicAlert. So the, you know, the bracelet organization. So it's a foundation. Some people think it's a company, but it's a foundation. And and here in Canada, it's a little bit different in every country where it operates. But in Canada, we also do a lot of, of activities with people who are vulnerable. So making sure people who have Alzheimer's or certain children who may be at risk, that they are equipped with the bracelet free. So for me, giving back to the community is such a critical part of my identity, but it's also, I think, a great way for organizations to think about how they you know, how they can make a positive impact. So I don't do it for my own brand, but I highly recommend that organizations do it because it's such an important part of how they how they are connected to their communities. Yeah, I like I, I mentioned uh, when we first talked on this call that I follow you on or we're connected on LinkedIn and just, just seeing the stuff you're doing both at work and outside work is absolutely phenomenal and very inspiring. And I want to dig, we'll continue to dig into that. Uh, but I just want to put this out there for our listeners that <laughs> follow Leslie because our, you know, connect on LinkedIn, it, it's pretty inspiring. And, I, and I, like I said, we'll jump into a bit more of that. Uh, but I do want to dig a little bit deeper in some of your background and get, get some more, get tactical and dig a little deeper. I'm trying to figure out tactics. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't have to worry about tactics too much. 
Here I am in charge and trying to say, why did you sleep through tactics? Tactics. You taught a course at McGill University called Issue Management and Corporate Communication. I think it was back in 2001 to 2009. I'm curious if you have a favorite case study that you've taught or analyzed or discussed with your students and some takeaways we can we can get out of that. There, so they were actually two different courses. So issues management was more about influencing public policy and stakeholder engagement, which is, as you know, externally speaking, that's a huge area of corporate communications. And then corporate communications itself was internal, external, a uh, little bit of CSR, it's a little bit of design and marketing and brand management. So all of that, and also includes a little bit of crisis management and change management. So, so those are some of the kind of key areas that you're responsible for in corporate communication. And and I ended up using a lot, I'm a very anecdotal kind of person. I love to use examples, as you said, case studies, but also things that I've lived or other companies have lived. And there's one story that I use all the time when I'm talking about change management. And I have a very strong belief that most communications is really change management because in everything we do, whether we're talking to our employees or to an external stakeholder, we're really trying to influence somebody to think something or do something. So if you if you put it in that really kind of simplistic way, communications equals change management. And there's an example of from change management that I use all the time. And I use it also now in my real life, like when I'm trying to talk to somebody and like a member of the management team or someone else. And that is, is that the nature of how we react to change and that we have a couple of options in our lives. We can go with that kind of happy accident. You know, the story about the invention of the chocolate chip cookie. I don't know if you know that I actually gave, I don't think I know that one. <laughs> I gave out, I gave out chocolate chip cookies to everybody. And I, and when I shared this example, because the way chocolate chip cookies were invented was a, there was a woman, an American woman who was trying to make a chocolate cookie and she forgot to melt the chocolate. So she threw the chips in afterwards and thought, oh, well, they'll probably melt. Of course they didn't melt and we got <laughs> the chocolate chip cookie. So, so some changes, some changes are a happy accident, right? When something doesn't go the way you plan, but you go, okay, I'm going to roll with this. And that, then that's the, a great happy outcome when you can kind of just, you know, go with the punches and, and, and figure it out as you go along and figure out like, what's, what's the opportunity again, a little bit with the relationship with the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, we're changing how we're doing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the second one, which is related to that is also a change management anecdote or analogy, which is what happened to Smith Corona. So, you know, Smith Corona was the world's largest manufacturer of typewriters. And when word processors came along, they had two choices, right? They could either join them or they could double down and try to make better typewriters. And that's what they did. And now you never hear the name Smith and Corona. So, so Smith Corona is the perfect example of what not to do in a crisis is to kind of hold on to your old precept so strongly that says that, well, this is what we do and that's all we do. You know, there's all kinds of examples of that. But I tell the, that story a lot and stories like that, which really talk about how we respond to change is going to is going to really affect, obviously, our outcome. And we have to not be so rooted in what we think we believe is true that we miss, in fact, an opportunity to grow yeah, I feel like I'm going to use that chocolate chocolate chip story every time I'm eating a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> really impressed people. I'm going, to, I'm going to look that up a little bit. I want to also talk about, because you were also a lecturer in international strategic communication um, at the university. Is it, is it Sherbrooke? I want to make sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, we, you know, Ubisoft, a lot of more companies are becoming more global. And I'm just interested if you have any must-dos or must-knows 
when doing international strategic communications? How should we be thinking about that a little bit differently than than maybe you know non-international strategic communications? What are those commandments of or, or must-dos that we should all know about? It's really interesting because teaching that course was a great eye-opener to me. It was the master's program. So these are people who are already very well educated in communication. They already had degrees in communications. And teaching that course really had two different focuses. It was teaching people how to be strategic, which is not a given. And it, and just because you have a degree in communications or someone like me who has a degree in something else doesn't mean you're automatically strategic. Like there, but you but it is a muscle you can develop. It's 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 the kind of thing that you can. I mean, I was lucky because I did debating, and debating is actually a fantastic. If there's anybody who's a in the audience who's a who's a university debater, college debater, it's a great way to develop analytical strategic thinking that'll really help you in real life. It's the most useful thing. I did in all my and all my education, to be honest. But in teaching that course, it was both this focus on strategy as well as what does it mean at international level. So I was head of communications for three different global multinationals, three different industries. And I can tell you that there are specific challenges that are related often. Uh, very closely connected to what happens at a local level when information gets interpreted and then filtered through the the regional or the, you know, the local lens. And it was interesting because last night you probably saw on LinkedIn, last night I was, I was a guest at a class at McGill again in the management and ethics class. And somebody asked a similar question. They said, you know, what's it like with a, a code of, of conduct, for example, most, uh, most communications people around the world are responsible for getting everybody to sign up and make sure you read your code of conduct and that you understand it. And that there's a, there's an element of change management in that, but and somebody put up their hand and said, what's the problem? What are the problems with having a code of conduct in different different regions and different countries? And, and one of the, the ways that I answered it was, it is exactly the kind of policy that can be written on a global level that has so much local interpretation possible. And the specific example that I gave was when I was at my last company, we opened up an office in Russia. And in Russia, the people there, they saw the code of conduct. They'd never had that before in their previous company because we acquired them. They'd never had a code of conduct, or if they did, they didn't really give it much, you know, much attention. And they noticed that it had this element of a whistleblower. And as you know, a whistleblower model, any publicly traded company needs to have that because that allows for certain transparency. And if there's something that shouldn't be happening behind the scenes, it gives employees a chance to report on that. But because the people in Russia had never had this concept before, they were using it to report things like, oh, well, you know, how come he's parking in that space next to the door all the time? And how come he has two computers or two or two staplers? Like it was, it was really ludicrous the kinds of things they were reporting on because they were so unaccustomed to this notion of what does this mean kind of transparent access. So there are definitely issues within organizations in terms of how do you adapt to local cultures. Another company I work for, for example, had a policy that said no alcohol during the, the day, no alcohol at all. And there are a lot of companies that have that as a policy. But we had a branch in France and they were so upset because they said, how could we possibly have lunch without having wine at lunch? That doesn't make any sense at all. So, so there's always this element of cultural relativism that needs to be taken into account where you say, well, what's the reality here and how do we make sure that we address people according to what they really need to know and, and, how, they, and how they receive it? 
For example, my company is a French company. French companies tend to be very uh, hierarchical, whereas a lot of the people who work in the office here are, are obviously not from that background. And so they have a very different attitude about hierarchy and even things like what's the polite form in French. We speak in French a lot here uh, that we use. So we have to we have to use the the polite form when we speak to the president. But amongst us, we're allowed to use the informal. So there's those kinds of interesting divergences or differences according to the, the cultural context you're in. Yeah, I'm curious. I want to I want to touch on that a little bit. And I'm not saying where you're at now or any of the examples you've given, but if you've if, how would how does internal communications work when you're trying to change a company culture, maybe from something that's very toxic to something that's a that's not toxic or um, you know, negative to positive. What advice would you give someone in internal communications who's whose really job is to help facilitate those changes um, and are struggling with, you know, getting some footing. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that cultural change, especially when it's going from a negative to a positive, no one changes from a positive to negative on purpose, of course. So when you're trying to improve your corporate culture, get a higher net promoter score for the HR people, you know, become a more of a sense of be, maybe you want to be employer of choice, all those things. It really starts with having a sense of transparency from the leadership because employees are uh, sometimes underestimated in terms of how much they pay attention to the messages. And I think that it becomes really critical that your leadership team, and it's not just one person, it's really the people around that. And, that, and that's actually an old model too, that I think we need to break and spread out the, the responsibility as well as the vision amongst multiple leaders that the leadership team has to be able to really strongly communicate whatever that new inspiring vision is, and then be willing to be super transparent and even vulnerable about it. Yeah. So I, I'm just curious, I want to go back to you and said, break that model. What does that model look like to you? Or do you have any thoughts on that? The old model, you mean? Yeah. What, what would a new model of dispersing power look like to you? So I, I think the model, and I mean, and you know what, every organization is different. There's the, you know, there's the Elon Musk and the Richard Branson of this world, right? Who are very much centered around kind of almost a cult figure who really, and, and you know, Steve Jobs was that person. I don't think that that model necessarily is sustainable in the long term. I think, and maybe this is a bit, maybe I'm diverging a bit from the original, uh, the original purpose of this podcast, but I really do believe that, that a coach leader is the right kind of, of manager. And I also believe that diffuse power has much more, is much more impactful than saying that you have one person who's kind of your demigod and, and his, and his or her word is gold. So one of the things that we try to do and that I try to do is show that there's a group of talented people are surrounding the person at the top. And the other reason this is important is because you render yourself extremely sensitive to any kind of leadership change if everything is hinged, if your culture, if your identity is all hinged on one person. And that's exactly what happened with Steve Jobs, right? And, and then poor Tim Cook when he came in. So it's a healthier system for an organization, but it also makes it easier to communicate the message because you have so many messengers. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get us back on track here, Leslie. So I'm just very curious your perspective. You have, you have such an interesting and something well thought out perspective, but I want to go back to the idea of, yeah, you're working at a very large company and I assume you've worked at very small companies and very large companies as like you are now. What are some challenges you see with each very work doing internal communications at a very small company and also at a very large global company? So I've been working for large companies exclusively for the past 12 years. And 
during that period, the technological revolution and communication tools has really has really just unfolded at this you know incredible speed. And the whole notion of the role of intranets, for example, and how we connect with people and how we manage and share information with them, that to me has been a, a major, major positive influence in how organizations can, can reach their people and make sure they're also hearing back from them. Because the old model, and this is something I actually used to teach in the strategic uh, course, the old model of what we're going to just give you this information and you have to absorb it and react to it does not work. And the new model is much more interactive. So in a small organization, the opportunities for interaction are multiple, right? You can go and sit down, you can take your little team out to lunch. You know, I worked for in a company with 300 people, everybody knew everybody, that was an easy environment to manage. When you're working with 45,000 people, which was one of my jobs, it was all about making sure that the right ambassadors were able to carry the message. So there was A, a technological solution, but B, a very human solution by making sure we had enough of the right people. And it's why this idea that was has been put aside a lot during the pandemic, but I hope it comes back, of bringing people together for these mega sessions where you say, okay, let's do a big download. Let's have an opportunity to connect and network and just get to know each other, but also really share key information. That is such an important element of any organization's information cascade because you need to have those people kind of on side from the beginning. And I can say, I've only been here for six and a half months, as I said, but I can see how communications has suffered without those moments of bringing people together. I want to dig just a little bit deeper into that. So I'm going to move into the next segment called Seat of the Table. First, get a seat at the table. Get a seat at the table. You want a seat at the table? Thinking about the size of the company that you're at, and you're going to need technology and staff to help get those messages out and dispersed. How do you go about, you know, respectfully and persuasively justifying a budget for your department? The good news for me is that this is the first company I've ever been in who really saw communications as critical to the operations and didn't see it as a cost center. I've literally had bosses say to me, presidents and other companies saying, saying, oh, here comes Leslie, how much is she going to cost us? And so we were seen as a price we had to pay as opposed to an added value. So, and I'm, this is a shout out to Ubisoft for their recognition of communications as a strategic element within our culture and within our, you know, the well-being of employee engagement, all those things. So it hasn't been as hard here as it's been in other environments, to be perfectly honest, but it usually is extremely complicated. And we still do, of course, have constraints. It's not no holds barred, of course. But the interesting thing about this environment versus other environments is that when you have a sense of buy-in and people recognize the impact, then there's an opportunity for you to continue to justify that. What often has happened in the past and what I've observed, even when I was on the agency side and my clients were in a position where they had to negotiate budgets, is that it's often easier to cut communications projects because they are difficult to understand the ROI. So like, what is the value exactly of this? Mm, Hard to say, but we know it's going to bring up our employees' morale. Well, how do you know that? Well, our surveys are showing that people feel more engaged. Yeah, but is it because of that or is it because of their salaries? So because the KPIs around communications are sometimes really difficult to quantify, 
less so in employee comms, I would say. I really feel employee comms as much as a, there's a much more clear correlation, but because there's a lot of stuff that people say, yeah, it's a nice to have, but is it really needed? It has been hard in other organizations. And I know a lot of communications people have this issue. So surprisingly, I don't really have that issue <laughs> right now, but I shouldn't say that out loud because I don't want to jinx it. But for example, the Ubisoft culture is as, you know, we're, we're, we make games. So there's an element of entertainment and fun. People believe seriously in fun. There are so many great events. My team also does all the events. Uh, we have all these great activities. We were, you know, willing to really try things. And I'm lucky enough to be in an organization that allows you to fail. So you can try something. If it doesn't work out, okay, we move on. And that, I think, is part of a mindset that not many organizations have. A lot of corporations are not willing to take that kind of risk. But we, given the kind of work that we do, we're more risk takers, which allows us to even be a little more flexible with budget. So I think there's a correlation. How conservative is your company and how likely they are to invest heavily in communications? Yeah. What would you, what advice would you give someone who's in internal communications, who's really struggling getting their company to invest? Is there a couple of pieces of advice you, you would like to put out to our listeners that they may be able to use? Well, I mean, I mean, I've been in the situation many times where you need to justify something. Sometimes it's um, sometimes you have to have some small gains to build confidence and credibility in order to go for the big gains. So you might not want to go shoot for your big battle the first time. That's one of them is to is to progressively win that that uh, sense of of confidence and trust and so that you can continue to to go further the second issue that i had and it was it was a it was a lesson that i learned the hard way because i had a project that i was so sure that it was a, it was a done deal it was absolutely clear to me this is in a previous life of course and i ended up um, just coming and presenting it to the rest of the exec team saying hey we're going to do this i had no idea how much people would feel invested in it and how strongly they reacted to it and it got pulled. And if I had spent even an hour speaking to five or six people for five or 10 minutes just to get people on side and building up those allies beforehand, that would have changed the whole outcome. So my second piece of advice is to really build relationships of people who are your supporters and can see the value in what you're doing and let them also speak for you because that will help you to push forward on the projects you think are key. I'm going to move into my last seg- my last segment. It's called asking for a friend. I was asking for a friend. Hey, asking for a friend. So I know you're on a bunch of boards. You you clearly do a bunch of Ubisoft, but I'm wondering if there's one non-work related activity that you do. Do you feel like has Um, that it indirectly impacts you and makes you better at your job that you would recommend for our listeners? I'm trying to decide which activity would be the the best one, Amanda, because honestly, uh, I love to do a lot of things. I'm really uh, engaged in culture. I didn't mention it, but I'm on the board of, for this dance troupe. Uh, I love, I studied music and art my whole life. And now I'm really into that as well. I guess the thing, and this is, this is not going to be a surprise probably, but the thing that I do that I appreciate the most is that when I, I travel and I travel a lot and my family and I, we have a, my husband's an immigrant, so we have a house in another country as well. And when I travel, I'm able to kind of A, disconnect from my reality, but B, 
liberate myself to think about things in a completely different way. One of the best projects I ever did for employee comms was uh, the one that I mentioned actually in the interview then when I was on a panel with you before. And that project came to me in this kind of spontaneous way when I was thinking about nothing to do with work. So there's a really important and valuable aspect of just doing anything, whether you're a runner or whether you play the tuba, it doesn't matter. Just be in a space where you're not necessarily thinking about what it is you have to do for work. And it becomes this amazing generator, this incubator for new ideas. I'm somebody who loves to travel and that gives me a lot of inspiration, but it could be something else. I also read, I read intensively. And so I'm constantly curious about all these different things. And recently I've gotten into TikTok, although I don't do TikTok, I just watch TikTok. And that has that's like a whole other conversation. That's a, that's another <laughs> language practically. So, so it's, I guess maybe another way to, to uh, put all that together and to summarize it, would it be to say like have curiosity? So don't just be about your work and your family, but be into something else that gives you a sense of just how incredible and amazing the rest of the world is and, and makes you think what your day-to-day is like in a different way. Yeah, I know when I when I was looking at these questions and, and writing some notes about them, I thought about this one for myself. And I feel like I'm a lot like you. Like I just like to try new things, even if I fail at them, it's trying. And um it's currently one of the things I'm doing that's helping just clear my mind. It's kind of what you said is I'm refinishing a, an old desk. I've done it before, but it was like 20 years ago. And so at night I've been down there stripping and sanding. And um I'd love for the listeners to take away from that just open your mind and try something completely different. And that allow you to disconnect from work. I know running, I used to, when I was a runner, 20 mile run where I could just let it go um, and come back and feel emotionally refreshed and physically better. Um, so I love that, that you're, I love hearing that from you, that you're trying new things. Um, Cause that's sort of the way that I was thinking about that question as well. I know you've, you know, you're sitting on a board about, you know, female leaders in Canada. Is there a significant barrier as a leader who's a woman that you've had to overcome, or have you heard a story, you know, as you're sitting on that board that you could share with, with our listeners? First of all, I'll tell you, Amanda, that when I started 25 ish years ago in kind of a corporate professional setting, I really assume we'd be in a very different place by now. I thought we would be really a parody. Like what's, what, what, what's holding us back from having 50% of our politicians, 50% of our leaders, 50% of our judges, like there's, it doesn't make sense to me that in 2021, we would still be so dramatically skewed uh, that with a, with an overwhelming male bias, an overwhelming white male bias for that matter. So I'll, I'll start by saying that not to be negative, but just to say that it's strange to me that we have not progressed so much more than we have. When I started my first kind of responsible job, I was 30 ish and I was director. I was appointed director of communications for that small company. I mentioned 300 people. And it was an amazing experience because I got to do everything. I, I did the PR, I did the marketing, I did, I did the website, I did the videos. I, I'd really got, and that was really my on-site education. I really had a, a great, great experience there. And the exception though, the issue in that particular case was I was the only woman in the management team. And so there were probably 25 men, directors and vice presidents, and me. I remember showing up to a cocktail that was being organized by the president. I reported to the president and the room went quiet when I came, when I came in. And to the point where I almost real, I almost thought that, okay, well, maybe I don't belong. And you, you can never let yourself in any environment, man or woman, 
doubt yourself. You need to be, you need to own it. And if you don't feel that, you have to act it. You have to, it's the classic fake it till you make it. You have to, you have to show externally everything that you want to be and want to have other people feel about you. So it was such an awkward experience. And then a couple months later, it was, um, it was Secretary's Day, which I think is April 23rd. Now it's called Administrative Assistance Day, but at the time, Secretary's Day. And so all of the secretaries, all the administrative assistants got flowers, and so did I. And, uh, and I remember, and I, I remember thinking, well, why did I, what is this? And so I went down to HR and I said, why did I get flowers? And they said, well, because you're a woman and, you know, we didn't want you to be the only woman who didn't get flower, didn't get flowers. And I said, I'm perfectly content not to get flowers. So I, I mean, that was a real estate environment. And then I worked in engineering environments. I worked, I worked in a lot of very masculine environments. And what's interesting is that communicators are very oftentimes women. So I'll work with a lot of women, but then work in the male environment. So I've I've learned a long time ago how to kind of speak the local language, whatever that is. And sometimes it's a more masculine language. But I honestly don't feel that there need to be any real barriers. I'm also the mother of a teenage daughter. So I have to believe that. I have to believe that that this is the last generation where there are these outmoded models of, well, you have to be the one who stays at home or you have to be home in time because you're the person who cooks dinner. My husband cooks dinner four nights a week, if not more. So you, we have to shake up these models. It frustrates the heck out of me when I see on a social platform, whether it's TikTok or or, or Facebook, when people are complaining about the fact that they have to tell their husband to do the laundry or pick up the garbage or anything, like what what is that? That doesn't even like that. That shouldn't even be part of our vocabulary. And that whole thing about babysitting their own kids, like honestly, we should be so past that. There's no excuse for that. And and honestly, until we get to that point, it's never gonna it's never gonna be true equality in the workplace either because there's still going to be this kind of skewed perception. So here in Quebec, we're lucky, I should mention, because it was one of the places on, in the world where we've kind of like a, almost like a, like a Scandinavian model in many places. You know, we have 100% paid uh, paternity leave and maternity leave. So it's, it really has done a lot to, in, in terms of creating more of a sense of equilibrium. It's not perfect, but it all translates back to the office. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it steps forward. Absolutely. What do you see as the next big shift in internal communications the next five to 10 years? What should we be prepared for? I think we have to be prepared for communication to not be owned by the conventional owners, that there's a the whole communications shift that's happened in general is absolutely outrageous and it's not over. That the technology plus communications model, you know, the fact that that now you can talk to people without ever seeing them, without ever, ever speaking to them. Most people I know of a certain generation, and sometimes me too, I'd much rather text than talk. So, and, and texting has its own shorthand, it has its own social code, it has its own sense of you know what etiquette is. So how we communicate to one another has been absolutely revolutionized by our access to technology. So how do we create this new co correct balance, especially with this new hybrid flexible model that most companies are embracing. How do we really think about this differently in terms of reaching people when most people only want to consume information in short bites in, in, you know, like the whole vine model. I know vine's not a thing anymore, but, but that, that kind of very short condensed, you know, Twitter statements, it's, it's like a, it's an idea. It's not an, it's not a speech. 
Uh, people don't read whole books, they read synopses or they read a Netflix version or they watch a Netflix version of it. So, so I feel that the technological advancements are happening at such a rapid rate that within organizations, we have to be prepared also that, that you, you don't control the message at all the same way. And one of the ways that I've observed this a lot, especially over the last five or so years, is the fact that internal communications is the same thing as external communications and vice versa. They used to be really two very clear, separate, distinct areas. And now you have to be prepared that whatever you say internally becomes almost immediately external and vice versa. Yeah, so they can go up on social media instantly. Well, this isn't a question, Leslie, but I just wanted to point out, you know, I saw that you had, you did a speaking engagement yesterday and you had posted something that a student had sent you. Um, and you'd mentioned in what you, you, you mentioned about that, that sometimes y'all have students say that they want to be you when they grow up and you say, well, I just, I want them to be their best selves, but I disagree. I think the world could use a lot more Leslie's out there, um, <laughs> you know, with, with their, you know, individual features, but I, I think you're a great leader, a great example of, of a good communicator and a, and a, and a wonderful human being. So I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, but before I let you go, uh, let people know where they can find you on LinkedIn or, or anywhere else, um, where they can connect with you. And if there's any other piece of advice you'd want to put out for our listeners, please, this would be a great time to do it. Well, I'm Leslie Quinton, L-E-S-L-I-E-Q-U-I-N-T-O-N on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And I definitely accept uh, invitations to connect on, on LinkedIn. So not a problem. If I were to give any words of advice, I do have a couple of mantras that I try to remind. I used to remind my students when I was teaching. And I also tell my, my team members is that it's, you need to, you know, the common one that you always hear is choose your battles. In other words, don't burn out your candle. Really make sure that the thing you're fighting for, is it really matter? And, and, you know, kind of corral your resources because in communications in particular, and especially in communi em employee communications, we're going to be pulled in so many directions. So just really, you know, fight the good fight for the things that are, are worth fighting for, but let go of the rest because sometimes it really doesn't matter. And that's not what's going to make you stand out. But the last, the real last thing that I also say and that I want to maybe leave you with is, is that it's never wrong to do the right thing. I know, I think, I think maybe even Ted Lasso had that in his, in his show, but it was something that one of my bosses said to me when I was going through a major, major crisis. And I think what happens is that in communications, you can easily doubt your competence from the perspective that everybody thinks they know how to communicate. Everybody can write a memo. Everyone has an opinion on how you should say something. I, I see it every single day. I've stopped taking offense to it a long time ago. If you do what you know is right, if you do what you know is both the, the, the issue of integrity is going to be the, the most useful, is the most well thought out, the most strategic, thoughtful, and the most compassionate thing, then you're, you're, going, to, you're going to succeed. So just have confidence in yourself. And I promise that in the end, you know, there's a little bit of karma baby in there, but in the end, it, it will always serve you right to, when you do the right thing. Yeah, that's such a great call. I'm glad you said that. I once took a job for a VP because during the job interview, he said to me, integrity trumps rules. And oh, I actually wow. wrote that on my whiteboard. And I, I used to I used to have it up because that's such a good reminder that no matter what the rules are in your company, your integrity trumps what those are. If you do the right thing, that's all that matters. So Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been really enjoyable. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Amanda. 
Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Cohesion Podcast, brought to you by Simpler, the modern internet software that simplifies the employee experience. Learn more about how Simpler can help you build the future of your employee experience at Simpler.com. That's S-I-N-P-P-L-R.com. To all of our listeners out there, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, make sure to hit subscribe, leave a review, and head over to www.simpler.com slash podcast for more information. Until next time, you're listening to the Cohesion Podcast, brought to you by Simpler. See you in the next episode.